Welcome to the DevReady Podcast, where we're helping non-techs build better tech. Today, we're with Aaron Young. Aaron is from Ticker TV, so founder and CEO of Ticker TV. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Yeah, great to be with you, Andrew and Anthony. Thanks for having me on board. Now, Aaron, um, how did you get involved in Ticker TV? What, where did this idea stem from? That is a very, very good question, which, as you'd imagine, that's something that takes this much work and passion. It's probably not one idea. It's probably a lifetime of, of thinking <laughs> about different things that I'd love to do. I mean, obviously, I'm 38 years old for the first 30-odd years of my life. The idea of starting a television station was would have required me to kind of head to a big technical shop, buy some metal and build a television tower on the top of Mount Dandenong or find a way to somehow get a satellite in the air. And obviously, things are changing rapidly in the space of media and we can all become our own producers of content, as you guys are. It really just comes down to bringing some of the things that I learned from the commercial media and turning that into something. Yeah, so in terms of commercial media, what's your background there? Where did you learn as a proposal being part of Sky News, for example? Yeah, well, I was at Sky for 13 years. I finished up last year after 13 great extremely different years. Sky was a company which has gone through numerous transformations, both technically, also in terms of presentation wise. I wasn't just a reporter or a producer or an anchor, but also the Melbourne bureau chief. So it was very much, it was our own little empire, as you'd imagine, Mm. where there were a lot of hirings and working with different people and building up relationships, building up a brand, which when I first joined Sky News, I always like to tell this story. For the first three years, my father thought that I worked for Sky Racing. And it wasn't until the equine influenza hit that uh, he said to me, um, are you going to lose your job? And I'm like, why on earth would I lose my job because of equine influenza? And he's like, you know, Sky Racing. And I'm like, Dad, I work for Sky News. And he says, oh, I was wondering why you were interviewing the Prime Minister. And <laughs> Brilliant. Asking about that, a better horse. Yeah, that's right. But that, that tells me a lot about how important marketing is and how important it is to tell the world what you do because mm-hmm. it literally is the idea if you could build the best house, but if no one knows it exists, what's the point? Yeah, correct. that's very, true. very true. So, um, yes, yeah, so a lot of learning, obviously, for Sky and the, the uh, putting it all together. What a broad There were other story. things as well, like Sky was Sky was important, but just yeah. to give you a little bit more of a background, I won't go too long on it but, uh, in yeah. terms of my CV, but really it began out of high school. I got a, a job at a local newspaper, which was down on the Mornington Peninsula where I grew up, and it was really hard work where you did everything and understanding your local community, understanding what a niche is, understanding how to make great relationships, understanding the importance of not just editorial, but also advertorial, also understanding how to make money, not just spend money is vitally important, as you'd imagine. Then went from that into radio at 3AW, where I was a reporter and newsreader, and that was overnight shifts and you know crazy hours, et cetera. And just journalism is not just a profession, but it's a lifestyle choice. And it basically owns you, which is why it's always so sad when you see people lose their jobs, because that part of the bargain doesn't get held up by the economic realisations of what we're all going through at the moment. And then after that, I moved to London where I lived there for about six months covering some massive news events, the death of the Pope in Rome and the London bombings were all there while I was there in 2005. When I accidentally got a job at a Russian TV network, which was a startup, would you believe, called yeah. Russia Today. It's now known as RT. I spotted and that on the, on the uh, LinkedIn profile. Wasn't quite yeah. About that. yeah. No, I know, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, well, I um, I was working as a freelance correspondent in the UK, okay. and as much fun and as glamorous as it sounds, you got to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. And basically, the money that I was making was just going to pay my phone bill for long distance charges back to Australia, because of course, in two thousand and five, you didn't have all the wonderful data based ways of delivering voice that you do yeah. now. So. If I went to Rome to cover the death of the Pope, I'd end up with a thousand pound phone bill. So eventually I realized I needed a job and to be paid something again. So I went for an interview at this, I was just told it's a new English based news channel, but it didn't mention anything about being Russian. So Mm -hmm. towards the end of a 45 minute audition, this lady sits down, very serious looking lady. And she says in a thick Russian accent, which I won't try and imitate, (laughs) how would you feel about moving to Moscow? Oh, wow. And it was like, oh, love, I've never thought about moving to Moscow, to be honest. <laughs> no, it looks bloody freezing. But being an opportunist, uh, an opportunistic person, which I'd like to consider myself to be, a week later, I'm on a plane to Moscow with 80 other journalists from the UK, the UK and some from uh, the US, UK, and some from Australia. And I was there for a year. And it was just so oh, interesting wow. to watch and to be part of a TV station starting up. And particularly in Russia, where Things don't make sense. I remember this situation where they bought this new editing software, first in the world to try it, which when you're a startup, you never want to be first in the world to try anything, obviously, because you've got enough things to worry about. But uh, it was this all-in-one kind of auto-cue, editing, script writing, rundown, studio control in this one piece of software at a time when computers don't work as powerfully as they do now, of course. And as you can imagine, it fell off the air day one and they blamed Soviet hackers or some rubbish for it, but it was just technology failing on day one. So I guess coming back to your original question, how did I get into starting Ticker? Just so many experiences, which led me to know that if I did, I probably could. Could. Mm, And I think that that Russian experience would be very uh, useful in the time. Absolutely. Yeah. It was a long, it was about what? 14 years ago now. Yeah, um, correct. That still holds you in good stead in terms of probably a similar experience at Tico, I would imagine. Well, you talk about how it's a line on my LinkedIn. It feels like it was a life-changing moment, not just a line yeah. in my CV. It, was, mm-hmm. it wasn't monotonous. Every day was completely different. I went yeah. from doing so many different things to so many crazy experiences. One of my favorite stories is Ariel Sharon, the Israeli PM, had a heart attack and went into a coma, and I'm live on air. And the only thing I knew about Middle Eastern politics was that it wasn't Far Eastern politics, which I also knew nothing about. It was the Middle East. I knew nothing at all. In fact, the name Ariel made me think of the lead character in The Little Mermaid. That was about as much as I knew about the politics of the the area. And so there I am live on air as a 23-year-old anchoring this rolling coverage for 45 minutes. And because of the cameras at the time, they didn't like the colour white or the shade of white. So we weren't allowed to have white paper on the news desk. It had to be pink. And so I'm sitting there, you know, like a goldfish trying to come up with ways to keep going for 45 minutes. When the door opens to the studio as a producer's rushing in with, unfortunately, a white piece of paper because they've run out of pink paper in the middle of Russia's winter and no one wanted to go out in minus 37 to the local Russian office works to go and pick up some uh, more pink paper. So as I'm watching off camera this now argument, which turns into a physical fight between the floor manager, whose job it seems is to make sure that white paper doesn't end up on the desk, he pulls out a gun. Oh, goodness. (laughs) That's an experience for you. 
<laughs> so yeah, that's my kind of HR style here at oh, Ticker. I've taken that. Yeah. I've taken that on board. <laughs> oh, that's a story and a half. A gun. That's not. I was about to say before you started that story. It's probably a fairly similar journey you into, but it's probably no, completely it's different. <laughs> You mentioned it was a life-changing time in or a moment in your life, and I think I wonder now I know why. So yeah, putting through that emotion, yeah, good fun. It was great. It was really good, and it was tough. Like it was the best and the worst experience. And again, that's a bit like running a startup. Some days it's fantastic, and other days you're so overwhelmed with the two million things that you need to do, whether it's yeah. dealing with people, dealing with technology that for some reason isn't working mm-hmm. and you're banging your head against the wall going, why is this not working? It worked yesterday. Nothing's changed. But eventually, you know, I think we realize that that pretty much happens to everybody. Yeah. It's yeah. Really we're all in the same boat. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. And at the time you feel like this is just happening to you, but yes. Yeah. Like think of the people who run giant media businesses Mm-hmm. And all of the things that could be going wrong on top of the fact that the advertising market's fallen out from underneath them to pay f- to fix all their problems. Like it's just, I would imagine there are some CEOs out there who haven't had much sleep for a while in the world of media. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of CEOs in plenty of markets. Right mm-hmm. yeah, so that's Aaron- the thing that we find, I was going to say, sorry, Andrew, um, with most startups is they seem to think that they, they're the only ones that have ever gone through what they're going through and right. challenges when they begin. So that's what we sort of try to get this podcast off the ground to get other, to let other people, other startups realize that it's a common thing that everyone goes through where you either make the wrong decision and you go down the wrong path and you have to start again or whatever you're going through, it's shared among everyone else. Yeah, and also understanding that the, the trouble with the word startup that I have is it overlooks the fact, like it's a beautiful word, it makes us all feel like we can sip Starbucks coffees in California together under the sun while, you know, riding our bikes through our office to our desk, which is a standing desk. It's lovely. But the reality is that we are small businesses that are starting off and we are members of the business community to which we are part of. So I am a media company as well as a startup. It may be fun to be a startup and we certainly have a startup vibe here at Ticker and we celebrate that. But when we are talking to 50-year-old businessmen who hold the purse strings to the advertising dollars, they don't care that we're a startup. They are comparing us to the incumbents, what they can get, and we have to beat it. And the fact that we are a startup and we all have fancy haircuts and facial hair, they don't care. And that's the uh, one of the lessons that I would like to really pass on because a lot of people told me, startup life and I had a lot of people who said to me don't do it whatever you do they've been living in London and they've been running a startup and they had no money and it got to the stage that this guy couldn't fix his washing machine and he said you know what I'm done I'm working 17 hour days I've got no money can't see any money coming in I'm tired of fighting I'm just going to go get a job and he came back to Australia got a job that's when I met him and he said to me just be really wary of who you bring in for equity because at the time they will promise you the world and then you'll discover how difficult it is to get rid of people. And that's a really, really important tip that I heard. But also the other is that just because he had a bad experience with being a startup in his industry doesn't necessarily mean that I'll have the same. And it takes me back to, in journalism, as you would imagine, like every conversation that you have is about the old days, how great times used to be and how dreadful it is now. And it reminds me of going to Win TV as a 17-year-old, bright-eyed, positive, optimistic young fella 21 years ago. I can't believe I'm saying that. I know. 
But uh, I feel like my maths are wrong when I say that, but it actually is. I've even calculated it with a calculator. It actually was 21 years ago. And, you know, the news director there said to me, oh, Aaron, you know, this isn't like the old days where there used to be money in the industry. You know, there are no jobs in journalism. I don't know why you'd bother doing this. And and we've got people from Metro TV trying to get into Win TV, and, and it's that bad. And here we are 21 years later, and it could be two minutes later because the same conversations are being said, which is, mm. I guess, a reminder that it's never been an open platter of opportunity. It's always been something you've had to fight for and strive for. And I would say that's the same with any business ever. Oh, that is brilliant, Aaron. I think what you said there is we can get sort of caught up in, in the past and we always think the past is better than what it is now, especially Correct. in times like today. And it's like comparing to last year could be very easily saying it's better. But in this current, in the cusp of what's going on in the moment, there is opportunity out there to help, to serve, to add more value right now. And you can see that there's definitely a parting of technologies become to the forefront of what most people are doing right now. So being in this space has allowed us to grow and expand in the current climate, but the other industries are completely falling over. So there are comparing from one year to the other doesn't make sense sometimes. And sometimes it's focusing on human need, right? So if you can focus on what is the need of your audience and you can come up with a way to put yourself in their shoes and what would they look for? What would they buy? It's very hard when you're so passionate about what you're doing to see what's wrong with what you're doing at the same time. Mm -hmm. And as much as I hate the word pivot, like I've got my, my close friends pull me aside every now and then and say to me, I can't believe how many times you've pivoted a ticker over the past year where you were going down a path and you quickly went, this isn't going to work. Let's go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And it's like a day by day, even sometimes hour by hour readjustment of your business strategy <laughs> to work out. That, and, and you look back and you go, God, I can't believe we used to do that. And then yes. my business partner, Jeb, will say, Aaron, that was last week. Like, <laughs> 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 that ability to be nimble is critical. Especially when oh, you're 100%. a startup, we're talking marks, just because you're you're small and you can actually make the changes quickly. Well, if I can, company. if I can, like, I, I don't want to at all talk down the media. I love the media. That's why I'm in the media. I love it. I'm someone who wishes that everything was like NBC News, where they have billion dollar budgets, but it ain't, and it ain't going to be like that anymore. And to put that into context, NBC, which we all know is that huge US network. I mean, they famously came to the Sydney Olympics. And had a camera from Homebush to look at the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge. And there were some power lines in the way. So NBC paid for the power lines to be put underground just for a five-second shot. Oh, like that's that's what we're talking about. Now, I love that. Like that really excites me. And I know that when I present this plan to my business team here at Ticket to get rid of some power lines out the front because they annoy my eye line, the view that I'm going to get. My point is there's no money anymore for that crap. And there never will be again. And We've seen an incredible democratization of the media landscape. When I was at Sky, when I first joined Sky, we were based at Channel 9 in Richmond here in Melbourne, which is now where Ticker's based here in Melbourne. It was a beautiful, beautiful old building that had been a piano factory, then became a Heinz tomato soup factory with the red floors, which we all used to joke was what happened to people when they got axed. But it was essentially the way that we looked at the whole industry was that Channel 9 was fantastic and Mm. they invested in sets and studios and they had so much money and the money was flowing. And I remember bringing my dad in to see and he said to me, Aaron, this place looks like shit. And then I brought in the Victorian Premier at the time, uh, Steve Brax, and he said, is this it? Because TV is about what you look at 
It's not about what goes on behind the scenes. You don't have to have multi-billion dollar office complexes to produce television. And in this day and age, I look at some of the larger media players in Australia and I think, how are they paying the power bill? Or how are they paying for that giant premises? And remember, it's not just one, but they're in Sydney and Adelaide and Brisbane and Perth and Victoria, and they've got security guards and receptionists and all of these people. And yet I know that the advertising industry and the businesses we're all working with are no longer interested interested in broad-based marketing campaigns. Google and Facebook have allowed us to really have allowed them to really pinpoint how to get their brands in front of customers on the devices they're using. And that experience of being at Channel 9 was wonderful in the sense of I got to be part of those days, but I could also witness how it just wasn't going to be about that in the future. And they moved. They moved from there into a far more nimbler environment, to use your word, of an office tower in the city, which I still think is a little bit over the top for what they probably need. It's just not necessary anymore. And the glamour days of what we had when there were three commercial TV networks that dominated all of the TV money, it's over. And I'm watching them fight against, yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm watching them fight against Google and I'm watching them fight against Facebook. And that's fine. And maybe they'll win and the government's making changes. But in reality, their customer base, as in their advertisers and their viewers went, Mm -hmm. well, we're going somewhere else now. And you can't fight that in court. Yeah, even when they're watching TV, people are on their phones now. So their attention is diluted too. Yeah, my dad, who still spends $180 a month on Foxtel so that he can watch sport, I've told him about this thing called KO and even binge. (laughs) And he just doesn't want to do it because he doesn't trust the NBN. And because he doesn't want the NBN to collapse, of course, it doesn't matter the fact that his router is behind a brick wall and that's probably why his NBN is struggling as opposed to the actual service, but don't mention the war. But my point is, is that even he, who's obsessed with satellite television, sits there with his iPad on Facebook during a Collingwood match, you know, talking to other Collingwood fans while using his mobile phone to communicate with his, his brothers who are watching the same game elsewhere. We're not just talking about secondary devices, but people are now used to having the mobile phone, their laptop or iPad, as well as the television going on in the background. Yeah, we're surrounded um, by technology. Everywhere we yeah. look, it's there. But also we don't have attention spans anymore. We have really, really short attention spans. Have you ever tried to show someone a funny video on your phone and they're just waiting for it to get to the point? That's what it's like all the time now. Yeah. I know that experience. Getting, you know that experience, yeah. (laughs) I love it. So you're getting that attention. We're all fighting for it. And like you said, there's so many medium. Like for Ticker itself, coming up with the concept of Ticker TV, where did that start? And how did you see yourself positioning it for a customer base? So what did you see? What sort of gap were you trying to fill with Ticker TV? Yeah, well, I'm not at all going to knock where I used to work because I think that they're fantastic at what they do. And they really worked out who they were. When ABC News launched their TV news channel, News24, whatever it's called these days, back, I think it was about 10 years ago now, they just celebrated their birthday. Up until that stage, Sky News was very nonpartisan and straight down the line. And that was where I worked. That was where I went to. The reality is, is probably because of that fact that they didn't really stand for anything is why my dad worked for, thought I worked for Sky Racing. So, you know, if you don't stand for anything, then... Be careful because you're probably not going to stand up for long. And so when the ABC came along with more reporters and, you know, these are the words of my boss that he would say to us all and he said to the market as well, that 
we really had to come up with a way to survive. And we did, and they did. And they chose a niche and it works very well for them. My view was as a consumer that, and I'm a 38-year-old guy, I care very much about international news. I wake up in the morning and I've got my websites, et cetera. I'm no longer watching the Today Show like I used to. And I'm no longer watching Sunrise like I used to. And the reason for that is that I feel like those programs are now targeted to their niche. And their niche is a 42-year-old mum who lives in Pakenham who could really do with winning that $10,000 block of cash. That's Mm. who the audience is. Mm. It's not who I am. And then I think about when I'm on the train to work where there are all these people with their devices looking for fresh content. And then I look around and I think, well, what is the demographic? And quite often it's between 20 and say 40, all on their phones, looking for something interesting, fun, and they're all professionals. And that made me kind of work out that if you are an urban professional in Australia, there maybe aren't many places where you can get news tailored to you, to your workplace, to your profession, that treat you as a curious person, as opposed to having kind of the same experience everywhere, right? And that was, for me, what I realised was, perhaps a sign that there was a market looking because if I'm looking and then I notice that my friends are looking, that means there is a market that is currently looking for something. So that was where it came from. It was a realization that there was no longer a commercial news channel alternative. The sky is very much an opinion place these days. It's what it's famous for. As I say, it does it very well. But for me, I thought that maybe there was another option. Yeah, and I think that's that's an interesting point. It's all about looking for gaps in the marketplace. And and you didn't jump in and just build an online TV station or TV news station off the back of just putting it out there and hoping people would come. So you had a market. Well, you've got to have a point, right? So you've got to have a niche. And our niche is people who we look for the biggest niches. So if you have a look at Ticker, our front-end programming of each hour, the first half hour, is the news you need to know. And it covers top stories in news, business, technology, and entertainment. Because as a 38-year-old guy, I'm interested in all of those. Don't Mm -hmm. think that your audience doesn't care about entertainment stories. They do. I will never forget the night that Michael Jackson died and ABC News led with some issues with a government website. Like, you can imagine the cardigan-wearing people, bureaucrats at the ABC, going, we're not going to cover... Michael Jackson, that's pop news. Now, the thing is, is it makes, like, we as news professionals have a habit of thinking that people care about what we care about, that we get excited because the government's admitted there's a problem with a website. That isn't memorable. People aren't going to remember that 10 years later, but they will remember Michael Jackson dying. And that's, to me, why I talk about how Ticker isn't, when I say a commercial news service, it's a news service that thinks about What do people actually care about these days? What is it that they're looking for? When you have a look at Twitter's top hashtags and trending, it isn't just straight news. They're looking for, people are searching for entertainment stuff. They care as much about the big entertainment story as they do about the COVID, today's COVID numbers. And they're not different people looking for different things. They're the same people looking for different things because guess what? We all have different interests. So the back half hour of Ticker became programming, which was business-related, but you could just start the conversation with the business of and then finish the sentence, and we want to have a show about it so long as there's a big enough niche. So it could be business of workplace where we have a black belt sensei who runs a, a, um, a business which helps CEOs 
modernize. So that's perfect for us because that's exactly something that someone in their 20s or 30s want to watch um, when they're on their way. Yeah, correct, because it helps them in the workplace and there's nothing like it on TV. And we've come up with our audience characters are a 29-year-old guy named Joel and a 28-year-old girl named Emily. And we've literally created entire personalities for who these people are, and that's our target audience. And so every conversation we have about a new show or a show that perhaps isn't quite hitting the marks is, would Joel watch this? Would Emily watch this? Would one prefer to watch this? Would they both watch it? And then that's how we decide what works and what doesn't work. So you've, we've created the audience that we want to talk to, and we do a lot of research about people, what they want, what are they liking, which content works for them, etc. And so we've got business of entertainment, business of aviation, business of food, business of influences, business of property, and on and on it goes. And some shows come for four weeks, some shows carry on forever. It just really depends on on how the hosts go. So you're evolving the shows with the marketplaces and the hosts, etc. Um, and the feedback. And I imagine you're monitoring all stats. Like you're not just going to. It's more um, putting a put a putting something out there and just seeing what the the feedback is. Evaluating from, it. Yeah, Joel and Emily. Basically. It's also about heart, though. So the reason yeah. that it's called Ticker is because yeah. a ticker is both what's at the bottom of the news channel with the text that scrolls past. It's called a news ticker, but also it's our heart, right? And yeah, to like me. It. The media has become too corporate, and I don't believe that the media really is a corporation. I think of when you go to see a, a stage production, a musical, it doesn't feel like a corporation, does it? It feels like you've gone to see it because you're going to go see a whole bunch of talented people. Every time talent meets the corporate world, something gives, and it's usually the talent. Mm-hmm. And I've seen situations where the corporation is so top-heavy that it can strangle the creative ideas of people. And I often say to people here at Ticker, like, enjoy these moments where we are all little and young and nimble and stupid because we're not going to be this way forever, hopefully. So actually enjoy it. Like, obviously, right now, resources are tight and we dream of the moment we'll have this and that, and it's coming. We've done a wonderful job in terms of the business side of things. Money is flowing. It's great. But when you get more people in, things get more complicated. So we try and really enjoy where we're at right now. Yeah, in terms of where you're at right now, how big is the team at Ticker? And how, are you in this on your, your CEO, obviously, of the business itself? How did you bring a team together to produce Ticker from that experience of, all right, you've obviously got the, you've got to put the tech out there to run this. You've got to build apps to do this. What did you think about there? And have you brought people along that journey or have you, how have you done that? Well, when I first started Ticker, I had a couple of business partners and one of them, as much as I love him dearly, he really believed in that riding around on bicycles and Silicon Valley mentality. And my response to him was, I'm not going to start Ticker. I'm going to start producing business cards for all those dickhead startup CEOs out there who will never have any employees and just have a business card with CEO on it. I figured I could actually start a business card company called Startup CEO. Brilliant. And all these people who had these ideas who call themselves CEO. This reminds me I've of never... uh, one, of, one of our early partners in our business. Uh, <laughs> yeah. that's, that was We've all had a CEO on the card. It's like Jesus <laughs> Christ story. That's exactly the same story. Hilarious. I remember having like these really long conversations about what our titles were that went longer mm-hmm. than the conversations about what the product was going to be. Yeah, it's brilliant. And it just... <laughs> I mean, how many people out there have had those conversations where oh. you kind of got to shake each other and say, 
hang on, we're just two idiots giving it a go, enough with the, the, the syllables and the initials. So essentially... That's a good insight there because if you're having those conversations with people in your team or your startup, walk away because it's... Yeah, walk away. It's a total yeah. waste of time. And it's also, yeah. to be honest, a pretty in- good indication of what's more important to the person yeah. that you're having the conversation with yeah, that leads to... Eventually, one day you'll get to the point you'll look back and you'll say, ah, that's very true. You're more into that than you are this. this. Having a startup, having any business is unrelenting and it's amazing. It's a lifestyle choice. I mean, I'm single. I go on dates where I'm sitting there having conversations and I'm literally secretly checking my emails because it's way more interesting that a guest has pulled out from tomorrow's show than anything I'm hearing. And it's very kind of, yeah, I'm getting a dog because I've given up on getting a partner during this <laughs> era and a dog has to stay. <laughs> so um, but my point is, is that when you love what you do and I love what I do, it's very hard to also recognize when you need support and when you need other people around you. And there are times where I've been working so long, so hard, covering everything from painting the studio to rebuilding sets to redesigning graphics to hiring people to having really tough conversations with people to which I, when you're a startup, you never think you're going to have to let people go. But obviously these things happen. And it's it's really tough. It's really challenging. And it's compartmentalizing in your brain. But to go back to your original question, we have about 30 people involved with Ticker. 12 of them are paid. The others are outside hosts who are business leaders who come and host programs on Ticker because they're the CEO of a business and they're also a leader in their field and they will host shows like, say, Ticker Property and things like that. But all of our news programming, et cetera, is all done within our own team to whom we pay and look after and expand. And to put that into perspective, a year ago, it was just me as the only person starting it off. So my day would begin with hosting a show at 8 o'clock in the morning uh-huh. which we chose because that's obviously the time that people would be heading into work mm-hmm. and they would be most likely to have their devices in front of them. And we went from there to, I'd go from there to basically having to produce another person's show as the director and training them up media wise. And then they would leave and then I'd have to do all the social media and uploading to the websites and et cetera, et cetera, design the website. It was horrific. I don't even know how I got through it when I look back. It was just so chaotic. And then you're trying to, Put out the very best thing you can because obviously, you know, I've left a professional environment and you don't want people to look at you as if you're an absolute idiot. But there was this kind of element of, well, who cares if they do? And when That's you have the knowledge, to have that too. Yeah, it's such a humbling experience. Yeah. Like it's such a humbling experience going from having producers and executive producers and makeup artists, and well, actually, we never had them at Sky, but stylists we certainly had. And you're sitting there anchoring and it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a crazy experience. It was a crazy environment to then come to Ticker where, you know, you're mixing other people's shows, the director. And, and never once did I feel sorry for myself, though. I never once sat and thought, oh, I miss the old days. or Because I knew that this is exactly what it's like. I'd read the stories about Ted Turner starting CNN, et cetera, et cetera. And it was always tough. There was always self-doubt. There was always, they'd been doing something far bigger and far better beforehand. And all of a sudden, you know, imagine Ted Turner starting a 24-hour news channel on satellite. Right now you could imagine it. Back then he was the first to do it. Satellite was only used for movies and sport until that stage. And he saw that there was a niche and he thought, I'm going to do it. And the networks all sat there laughing at him going, you idiot, 
there isn't even enough news to cover 24 hours, but he made it work. And now who's laughing? Yeah, yeah, there, no. There's so much more to being a CEO than having a business card. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you have to do it's, everything um, at, in, it, the, at the, in the beginning. Yeah, well, correct. It's like you don't even have time to get the business cards, to be honest. I think back to designing websites, redesigning websites, doing the logo, doing the promo, doing all the PR and marketing because when you launch something brand new like this, everyone wants to talk to you. It's very exciting. Like that was the most exciting part. And then you've got to keep producing every day. You've got to come in and you know no one's watching and no one's probably tuning in and no one probably cares. And you know that everyone at your old workplace is probably laughing going, why on earth is he doing this? But I look at it now and and it's wonderful. Like I get people I used to work with now coming and saying, hey, it looks like you guys are going great. Can I have a job? So it's, it's yeah, really exciting. Sign, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, yeah. General, I've heard this statement before. I don't know who said it, but we're held back generally by something good and good might mean a good job or a good something. And that might hold us back from doing what we actually love or what we imagine the world could be. And I think you've taken that leap clearly. You were probably in a, in a reasonable job at Sky by the sound of it and then decided to jump out on your own, do your own thing completely. I had, uh, I had a lot of anxiety and I think mm. that a lot of people listening to this might remember mm. and you guys might know it as yeah. well. I don't know too much about your backgrounds, but when you're working in a corporate environment and you're, you get to a certain age in life where you've learned so much I came from a family of small business people yes. and every day I would go to work for the man and there was this element in the back of my mind of guilt, of rising guilt of why am I not doing this for myself? And as I was approaching 40, I'm approaching 40, I kept asking myself, how would I deal with myself mm-hmm. if I got to say 45 and was made redundant from my job because mm-hmm. I didn't try. Try something. Because... I kept going to work and accepting the wonderful paycheck and on and on it goes. And that just kept rising until I started waking at five o'clock in the morning, thinking about that and questioning, what am I doing? And so for all of those frustrating days, for all of those difficult conversations and uncertainty and et cetera, of starting a, a startup, starting a small business, at least I'm not doing what I've always done. Yeah, you've taken, stepped outside mm-hmm. your comfort zone. And that's where the anxiety can come from too. So Absolutely. Yeah, just look at it. it is a comfort zone thing. And it's like if you're, yeah. you've been doing something for so long, and I think we're trying to attune into people that are that are in your position probably a year ago that have that idea, that concept, that have the domain experience to go out and do something that you've done, maybe not in the same field, but in a different different sector and different they've been in industry in i don't know engineering for example and they might want to go out and spin out something but having the confidence to say i'm going to do this i'm not going to think about what other people are going to say about me isn't that easy and i think people that go out and do it have a little bit of balls i'll put it out there just to go out and do this and just give it a go because in the end looking back a year ago you don't know where you're going to be in 12 months and given where you are now you've come a long way in 12 months given some of the stories we've seen in the startup world and the startup spaces. Yeah, we- I, look, I have to apologize to my poor business partner who has to put up with me every day running. We refer to ourselves as the out-of-control train. So I'm the one chucking the coal into the steam engine and adding more carriages on the end. Uh-huh. And the poor guys in front frantically trying to build the uh, train tracks to keep us <laughs> keep <you> going. From, <laughs> from going off. And that's how we kind of visualize ourselves. Yeah. So my view is that... Uh-huh. I cannot believe that someone else hasn't done this sooner. 
Mm. I cannot believe when you turn on Channel 7 or Channel 9 and right from 5 a.m. they've got news to the Today Show or Sunrise to their mid-morning news, to their mid-afternoon news, to their evening news, to their 7 o'clock news. It just doesn't stop. Mm -hmm. Yet they're all stuck on broadcast. And then at the same time, they're whining and dining the Federal Communications Minister and telling the Federal Communications Minister that they don't want to have to pay for their licence fee anymore because in their view, the broadcasting licence fee is worth nothing. Mm. Now... I just sit there, five channels all day, giggling to myself about how one day investors are going to go, oh, yikes. And in fact, when I started Ticker and I was talking to investors, people who were going to invest in us, they said to me, if you have ads, we have no interest. We will not invest in a company which relies on advertising as a media organization anymore. And it was fabulous advice. In fact, about two weeks ago, I did an interview with Ad News, which of course is the advertising industry's Bible. Mm -hmm. And the headline of my article is Aaron Young's Ticket TV was told by investors, we won't invest in a media company that relies on ads. And I mean, could you imagine being the editor of Ad News? And there's this this guy say like, but that's what I was told. And that's the reality. And it's not to be a a smart ass. I appreciate the effort that goes into the advertising sector, but that is what I was told. And I listened to everyone who gives me advice. I get a lot of advice, a lot of feedback from people around the world. Luckily, you know, our creative director here at Ticker is a guy named Tim Anderson. He's based in London. He's just moved to London. Uh, He's been working for NBC as creative Warner Brothers. He worked on The Ellen Show. I haven't asked him how that was yet. Um, He uh, has worked all over the place. And we've got access to these incredible people. And in the end, as I said, from my experience at Channel 9, it's just what you put on air. So on Monday, we've got a brand new graphics package launching, which we've been working with these fabulous people at Lightrise who used to, or who worked at Sky where I used to work. They've packages right across the world. It's unbelievable. It's iconic. It gives us a distinctive look. And in the end, TV is your graphics package, your audio, your presenters, and your studios. Nothing else matters. That's what it comes down to because that's what people see. When you're scrolling through your LinkedIn or your Facebook or your Twitter or whatever, that's what people are looking for. And they want to see something that looks professional, visually interesting, posted by someone that looks like they're welcoming. And that's the only chance you have to have someone to stop to see what you're talking about because that's where we're in now. Yeah, no one cares what happens behind the curtain as long as what's delivered is what they're after. Yeah, what I, yes, at Channel 9, I realized, and again, they're wonderful people, but it is. The Wizard of Oz, what's behind the curtain? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's the same thing when, with us when we're developing software. If a button doesn't work or that we develop or it's not doing what the client expects, they don't understand how much work has gone in behind to make that thing do what it's supposed to do, even though they didn't expect it to do that. It's, so it's interesting that thing. someone said to me about how coming up with a simple idea takes more work than anything else you could ever do. And the, the real tricky thing that I've had over the last few months at Ticker is to give you an idea of the growth. You know, we started off 20-minute show, add someone else. I'm trying to get my show to one hour, which we got to after about a week. And then we had a week of one-hour shows. That's not enough, you know, because TV has to be about quality and quantity. Mm-hmm. Can't just be a one-hour show. People want more than that these days. Look at poor Channel 10. They were producing a one-hour news service until the accountant said, hang on, we can't have a newsroom in Adelaide 
producing one hour of content a day with all of these people. It doesn't make sense anymore. So you could kind of see the direction that that was happening. And to be honest, if you can have one team produce an hour, you can have the same team produce 24 hours. That's what I saw at Sky. So if uh, so, we kind of got to that stage. Then we brought in all these hosts. So I was contacted by wonderful people on LinkedIn, which became essentially my seek.com was LinkedIn. And just heaps of people saying, hey, I'm an expert here. I'd love to do a show. And I just said, yes, 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 yes to everybody. As I say, opportunistic. This was me moving to Russia. It was the equivalent of that. Until one day someone pulled me aside and said, well, Aaron, what's your voice? Who are you? Because you've got all these different people and all these different shows, but they're not all the same. There's no one voice coming through here. And so at that stage, of course, that became the difficult conversations and the working on what is the brand? Who are we? What works? What does our audience expect? Because you want to be able to tune into Ticker and know roughly what you're going to get. It can be a different show, but it needs to have the same voice, which is business, tech, news and entertainment for under 45s, urban professionals who work. And that's where we start again with Joel and Emily every time. And one, one and of the that's like, important yeah. is you have to focus on the customer. So initially you're probably just trying to like just you're steamrolling through, getting it off the ground and building up the process. You're focused on survival. Running. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you're working on the methods and the processes to get that content running for those hour long shows and all day. And then you have to yeah. adjust and focus that those efforts, which is focusing on the customers and that touching yeah. on that Joel and Emily, that's critical to always focus on them because unless you're delivering value to the customers, nothing's going to happen. The trouble is, is what I realized is that Joel and Emily weren't going to come and work at Ticker to start with. So it was very, very hard to attract young hosts. It's interesting. One of the things I've learned is that while we all believe that young people are opportunistic and jump up and down and want to try new things, it was actually people who are over 50 who are more willing to try something like Ticker, Interesting. both as hosts, but also as advertisers, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So while I'm trying to target Joel and Emily, yeah. I'm finding that it's their parents who are the ones who are actually wanting to get involved in Ticker. And would you believe that the average age of the entrepreneur and startup founder in Australia is 54 years old, not oh, 18? Well, that's, yeah. that's even higher than like the... I thought it was 40s, but yeah, average. yeah. Well, that's you for no, it's US. people in their 50s yeah. who get to that stage and they say, you know what, I've had this great job or it's come to an end. Or And quite often people in their 50s say that they really struggle to get a job elsewhere. Mm. So they go, you know what, I'm going to go out on my own. I'm going to do this myself. And so that became a place where even though we wanted to go under 45s, I also learned a second thing is you will never meet anyone over the age of 45 who doesn't want to think that they're under 45. And so I realized (laughs) that by targeting the under 45s, I could both make under 45s watch, but also give over 45s something to remind themselves of. My, my parents, my grandparents have always been very contemporary. I think my Nana's been a, an earlier adopter of technology than I have ever been. So that's um, pretty good insight. No one who's 80 ever wants to think of themselves as 80. Yeah. You at forty, you still think you're twenty. So I'm leading up to <laughs> yeah. age thirty six, and uh, you think of yourself as yeah, still in your twenties, and you think you got more experience behind you. But yeah, age is only a number. Really. Yeah, it's about the mindset. It's those damn time. Facebook reminders of what you looked like ten years ago. That's the thing that's <laughs> yeah, uh... they're a bit shocking sometimes. <laughs> when you look at those, <laughs> but uh... see how much your hair's changed. <laughs> yeah, mine's continues receding <laughs> as always. But it actually, it actually leads me to another point that I was thinking about this morning, which is that we're all, you know, very much looks focused. We can't help it. We all worry about how we look, et cetera. Mm. And we feel like the trade-off 
is you might lose your looks, but you gain experience. And that is actually quite dangerous in my opinion. And I'll tell you why. I'm surrounded here at Ticker by people who are in their late teens and early 20s. And the reason is, is that they may not have the experience that I have, but they see things for how they see things now. They don't see things for what I experienced 20 years ago. So they don't know about the conversations, the historical things that I know. Now, quite often, having that is helpful for me. But when you're trying to appeal to a younger audience, surround yourself with those people because they will teach you what to ignore. My number one thing when when one of these young whippersnippers tries to tell me something is, what do you know about? You might be young and pretty, but I've got experience. And by not listening to them, I was thinking to myself, why do we not listen? And it's because it brings us back to that trade-off that we've said to ourselves when we look at those old photographs of us. Well, I looked young then, but I didn't know what I know now. And my point is that sometimes knowing what you know now and all that experience can work against you. It can stop you from being opportunistic. It can stop you from taking a risk on an idea which could work. And just because it hasn't in the past doesn't mean the circumstances that that idea would endure today are the same as the reason they failed in the past. And to not allow your kind of afraid of getting older And so therefore being more conservative with your ideas to get in the way. Sometimes you have to literally watch your bank balance fall to spend the money on a great idea that could cost you more down the track. And then other times you need conservative thinking. So it it has to be, you never want to be someone who just stops every fresh idea coming from someone and, and saying, well, you don't know what you're talking about because we're not always right. I see people in their 80s and 90s who make bad decisions because all that experience doesn't help you when you're dealing with something that you've never gone through. You might as well be 19 again. Yeah, we'll have to start somewhere, especially on new topics. It's an awesome point, Aaron, for people to think about, especially when they're attempting to jump in. And what you mentioned there, um, it probably dives into surrounding yourself with around your customers too because the people you work with are also your target audience. So... If you're not surrounded by them, it becomes very difficult to serve them. So I think that's a really good insight. When, when you shift and you become a startup founder and you've come from a wonderful experience like for me at Sky, it wasn't just important about the lessons that I brought across. It yeah. was just as important, perhaps more, the lessons that I was willing to forget. Because if you're really trying to do something new, which is the whole point of starting a business and being a startup, is that you've perhaps witnessed something that maybe your former employer didn't do that you watched and you thought, I reckon there's money in that. Mm. And then away you go with it. You therefore have to be willing to to realise that their old teachings, their old stories won't necessarily work for your new business. So what you forget is just as important as what you're willing to learn. In terms of... um... Sometimes it's hard to know what to forget and what to remember. That's that fine line of trying to balance... It's taking current experiences, yeah, right? I guess so it comes, what's, what's the it comes down to your personality, right? It comes yeah. down to what, what are you willing to do? I mean, it's like a game of footy, right? You can have the best coach, but in the end, you're the one who the ball falls in your hands and you've got to, do, you've got to know which way to kick. And no one can teach yep. you that. It's up to you to know at the time. And it very much is like a game of football being a startup founder. You're fighting for the ball all the time and then it eventually falls in your, into your hands and you've got to know what to do with it. Do you hold it? Do you run with it? Do you try and kick the goal yourself? Or do you trust someone else that they can do a better job? And you have to make that, that decision sometimes in a split second. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you've got some people that are around you, advisors, even potentially investors in this business. How did you um, structure the early stage of your business to set yourself up for success? <laughs> very good question. And I have to be very careful not to hurt anybody's feelings in the That's way that okay. I answer that question, <laughs> obviously, because I'm sure they'll be tuning in. But uh, my point is, is that when I began, the people who believed in me were the people who believed in me who weren't necessarily right for me. Mm-hmm. And that's a very, very difficult conversation to have with people because when you start out, people will invest or believe in you. But in the end, you have to remember, no matter how nice they are, self-interest is always there. We don't part with our money just because someone's a nice guy. Mm-hmm. We part with our money because we believe that we're going to make money back, more money back hopefully, and because we trust that that person has the experience to make something work. So thankfully for me, I had had the I'd had a pretty good way of showing people that I had the experience. Right, I had done the job. Um, there hadn't been kind of issues with me doing the job. It had been great. So people were willing to to go. All right, well, he's worked at Sky News for all these years. He's run a bureau. Let's get involved. So the two people who got involved, one worked for a bank and one was a startup founder, and they were both completely opposite types of people. Right, would have been. Yeah, absolutely. One was very conservative in his thinking. The other one was the opposite and probably needed to be a bit more conservative in his thinking. Um, And I was listening to both of them. And while at the time I thought that it was great to have different opinions from different types of personalities, it actually made it very hard for me to manage both of them because I was always letting someone down. Mm. I was always, in their eyes, ignoring their advice, which they believed was coming from a wealth of knowledge. And I, in, in the end, had to just choose what my gut told me while also starting a business. That is a very overwhelming experience and a lot to take in for someone who's also trying to run a business. So when I look back at that, it was kind of tricky. And when one left, I realized that probably the other had to go as well because now I was off balance and I okay. couldn't have a really strong voice coming at me from one side without a counterbalance. Mm. At that stage, a young guy got involved in the business who I've known for a very long time. His name is Jed. Mm-hmm. And he was the first person I told that I was going to start this business called Ticker. And he kind of watched for a little while just to see whether I was actually serious about it. Um, he had been working in advertising and sales at Osterio, So he understood media sales and was now working at Treasury Wine Estates um, selling wine. So two of my favorite things are media and wine. And we've been friends for a really long time. And he's one of those people who will never kind of take no for an answer. And I love that because I'm a journalist and I'm used to having to take no for an answer. But he is someone who just keeps trying. And we are very similar in about 90% of our personality. So we're like two circles that overlap and 90% sits in the middle. But my 10% is creative and risk-taking and his 10% is conservative and don't take risks. And so it allows us to have a far better relationship. And sometimes, you know, it can be really challenging when we really don't agree on something, but it doesn't happen every day. It perhaps happens once every few months. And when I compare that to the early startup days of Ticker, where I was having two people with completely different personalities fighting every day, every hour of every day, and me basically having to choose who to listen to on a day-by-day basis, I'm much, much, much more relaxed as to where we are now. But having said that, I mean, those two people in the early days also were fantastic in many ways. They pushed me. 
they pushed me through my concern. I'd never been a CEO before. I mean, if you can even call it that, I just, I'm, I call myself the guy who turns up every day. <laughs> or is there 24 hours a day, one or the other? Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah. But it's, uh, that's kind of how I look at myself and how I communicate with, with the team. And what I love about where we're at at Ticker with these 12 people is no one leaves at the end of their shift. Now, I sound like a really awful manager to say that, but everyone's so passionate about the project they're working on that they stay until the project's done. Mm -hmm. There's no clock watching. Like I think we've all worked in businesses where you're just kind of waiting for your seven and a half hours or eight hours to, to kind of end so you can go home and hopefully switch off for a while. Here, it really has that vibe of it's only ever going to get better if you personally contribute to making it better. And I love that kind of view, that kind of workplace, because it means that people take ownership of what they're doing and of their part in the business. I might be the figurehead of the business, but obviously we've got a whole bunch of people who are working on making the computers more streamlined, making the graphics better, making this better, just people who have ideas. Like I wake up at three in the morning some days and think to myself, oh, wow, there's a better way to do that and rush off and come into work and actually put it into action. Yeah, the joys that's, of being that's a, how it being is. Being a founder of a startup business. <laughs> yes, it never, never ever ends, it? stops. Yeah. You never stop thinking. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that insight into the business and how you sort of started out. And I think I think you, you touch upon something there. And is Jed a co-founder or how has that played out? He's, he's one of the first employees. How has that played out? Um, Jed is our commercial and operations partner. Okay. Well, yeah. he manages that these days. Yeah. He's head of our sales. Yeah. I mean, he does everything like yeah. I do everything. We all do everything. Uh -huh. And I guess like we kind of titles to us aren't very important mm. because we have a look at, at everything. And, and he has ownership in the business, which has increased his ownership in the business because he believes in what we're doing. And I really believe in that too. Okay. I'm not sitting here trying to run a, an empire where it's just me who has the final say in the ownership. And that's that. We share an office. He is, in fact, sitting about five metres away from me right now. We had a choice of having separate offices or we can share an office. Uh -huh. He's got his new AirPods in, pretending he's not listening. <laughs> he's probably writing down everything. Great. Awesome down the track. <laughs> <laughs> but we have, in the end, we have a fantastic friendship. Yeah. And yep. uh, you have to. You absolutely oh, you have do. to. We will be at nine o'clock at night you know, in the car driving somewhere to pick up a new laptop that we found on Facebook Marketplace to nice. save some money. <laughs> and, you know, just whatever it takes is kind of how it is. Oh, and, uh, and reaching other people, doing this on your own is near and it's impossible. There's no such thing as a business that is started on its own. Yes, you might own 100% of the business, but you need a team around you. It doesn't matter how you structure it. You need a team and equality people to question. Absolutely. Like I'm, yeah. I'm shocking when it comes to finances, right? Yeah. I'm quite, I run a business network and I'm shocking at the business side of it because yeah. it affects the creative side. You're the talent. If It's a bit different. So talent and yeah. business are very different uh, conversations. Different but you've got to be aware of both, right? Oh, you do, so yeah. Let's go back to that. Let's go back to that runaway train that I was telling you about. If I was on, if I was in the cockpit of the train of the engine, panicking about the fact that we're about to run out of rails, mm. would I be adding more carriages and more coal into the fire? No, I wouldn't. But we need to because in this game, it's go big or go home. Mm -hmm. It's get bigger and faster and better, or someone else will. So if I spend all my time looking 
at the front of where we're going and focusing and panicking and losing sleep about those sorts of things, then it's not going to work. Just as if Jed was doing all those things and then panicking about issues that we might be having in one of our carriages or that I'm about to run out of coal, we keep each other across the, the emergency things we need to know. But I don't want to know because I don't want to panic. I don't want to be up at night worrying about things I can't control. I want to be up at night trying to come up with solutions for the things I can. And so in a sense, I just outsource my lack of sleep to somebody else. I like it. (laughs) It's a great way to do it. Very similar to say to Andrew and myself. You need that other person to rely on. Yes, you do. And when you've got that clear separation of like concerns effectively of who who focuses on what to their strengths, it always works better. 100%. So, Aaron, let's look a little bit about, we haven't spoken much about tech, but I think there's some great business insights and thinking about how you might structure a business, work with people, collaborate, and what a business really is, especially in the startup space. Obviously, Ticker is an online business. It's all about online TV. Technology exists within it. How have you approached that end of the bargain? Because obviously you were at Sky, but sitting behind the desk, behind the camera, how have you gone about approaching that? Who have you brought on to help you guide that process? Yeah, very good question. And it's come quite timely because I think I'm about to contradict everything I just said in the last question. Yeah, well, because I completely outsourced that to one of the other business partners who I mentioned earlier, and it turned out to be a really, really big and costly mistake. And it came with good intentions. So I I start this with no one did anything to cause a problem, but they forgot about the user experience. And that is where it all began. Mm. So when Ticker first started, my mate, who was very much the startup guy, really believed that we should be charging for the service. And his belief was for $55 a year, people will pay to download an app that gives them all the latest business and tech news. That isn't something that really, when I look back on, was a great idea and I went along with it because he was so adamant that it would work. Interesting. And that's where sometimes outsourcing everything isn't a great idea. Mm. He did the whole process. He found the team. He worked with them. He went backwards and forwards. I wasn't really aware that was his thing. I was worried about getting the host, the look and the feel, the marketing the the studio, the design, all of that was my kind of area. And his area was to go and get the app happening. The problem with that is that it wasn't the right strategy for us. First, to charge people, Mm -hmm. nor was it the right strategy to basically work with a team that would only build us an iPhone app when we realized that a big part of what we're going to do was we needed an an Apple TV app, an Android device. You know, as soon as we launched, everyone was asking, how do I watch this on Android? I didn't realize there were so many bloody people on Android (laughs) devices until I launched an iPhone app. 50%? Give or take. Yeah, well, that's right. But it was very, very frustrating. And then to go backwards and forwards and to work out, it was going to cost us so much more. And and because it was all done as a kind of matesy-matesy thing, it very quickly turns into serious when you're having those conversations. So eventually it just took me to say, and, you know, the other business partners who had now replaced the people that were there to say, well, what is our new strategy? What do we have to do? What is it that the audience requires? What do we need? And it was off the basis of that, that we essentially threw out the, the first app Brilliant. and we started all over again. Mm-hmm. And we went and realized with a simple Google search mm-hmm. that there was a better way. And that's what we did. Yeah, I'm guessing there was a lot of 
off-the-shelf options for that came out of that Google search? Yeah, so you have to build them. Well, yes and no. So we ended up partnering with a business called Uscreen. First, we went to Vimeo because Vimeo had worked with a company called Cheddar, to which I loosely got the idea for Ticker from. Okay. So Cheddar is a uh, business network that started with a 20-minute Facebook Live thing five years ago on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, built up into being a 17-hour-a-day network, sold for $200 US million after four years of operation. And this, to me, has never been about the money, although that would be lovely. But it was, to me, a sign that it worked, Mm -hmm. right? So what I was doing at Ticker, there'd been proof that this worked overseas in the US, which was a pretty good sign for me that it wasn't just rushing off away from a job at Sky News into the unknown and maybe this will work. There was evidence that it had worked. And I knew that they had done Vimeo. But Vimeo were pretty expensive. Like it was ridiculously expensive. More than our yearly budget was their monthly cost of being involved. Oh, well. And so just typing alternative to Vimeo (laughs) into Google came up with the answer. And so I phoned them and went backwards and forwards between Vimeo and them uh-huh. for a few weeks and eventually settled on Uscreen. And Uscreen weren't perfect either. Like they have a lot of things in their app that they designed for, think of church groups who do video broadcasting, but they want people to sign up. They want your data. Uh-huh. And I realized early on from, again, my own user experience that when I go to nine now or seven plus and I'm desperately trying to watch the news on my mobile phone and I log on at 5.59. And then they just start asking for all these rubbish questions, like first your email and then create a you know, password. And then it goes from that to then you've got to go to a laptop and go to you know ninenow.com forward slash activate. And then you've got to pull out your mobile device and get the numbers correct. And by the time all that was done, it was five past six and I'd missed the top story. So... What they did is they lost me as a viewer. They didn't gain my data. They lost me and I will never go back. The barriers to entry, I think. You stumble across something that's really important for everyone to know. And that's what you. Barriers to entry is exactly the right word. Don't ever, when you're new, create a barrier to entry. And you're doing that when you look back at the $55 a year, I imagine, especially for That was a barrier for entry. Only having an iPhone was a barrier for entry. On and on and on and on it went, which that's the lesson I learned. Mm -hmm. But. You won't, as a startup founder, have every answer and you will make big financial mistakes. The question is, do you keep going in the direction of your big financial mistake because you've spent this amount of money and you don't want it, you know, you just want to pan it out to see, or do you quickly change course and write it off? And my view is you have to quickly change course and write it off. People can be harder. It can be really hard to let people down. I find that a real struggle, which having been, and this is my problem. So being talent and being the owner is really tricky. And hopefully none of my staff figure this out, but I find it really hard (laughs) to to pivot because I've been the talent at other places where I've been treated badly. And I've thought to myself, I would never treat people this way. Mm. And then I find myself all of a sudden having to make similar decisions for similar reasons. And I don't like to do it. And it's been quite a come to Jesus moment for me, both for my personality, but also to understand why TV news directors, et cetera, have such bad reputations <laughs> as essentially like they say there are more psychopaths who work in television than any other industry. And I've never wanted to be a psychopath, but I think unfortunately you have to make non-emotional decisions with really emotional people. And that's really difficult. You have to take all the empathy out of it. 
Yeah. Friendship. Yes, that's exactly right. And in a startup, you have to be friends because you are overlooking the fact that you have much else to offer and that can be quite a challenge too. Mm-hmm. So off that, yeah, off that learning, Aaron, with the t- early days of technology, what would you do differently if you went back and started all over again? How would you approach that differently now? This is something I want to say to someone who's in my situation right now. I kick myself, why did I not do the Google search? <laughs> why did I not look for other options? Why did I allow someone else who, even though he had skin in the game, to take over an entire idea. Why did I not think that someone else might have had this problem before me? Why did I think that we needed a custom solution when perhaps there was a far cheaper off the shelf? And that also then comes to that, that leads, that question leads to a lot of answers and a lot of rabbit warrens too. It comes down to when you're a startup founder, you need to learn to trust, but you also need to learn to question even the people you trust. You need to be able to really dive down when it's something so important as I'm a distributor of news and I let the distribution be in charge by someone else. Mm. And I wanted to believe them because I had too much else to do. But the amount of work that it's taken us to get back on track when all it was was a difficult conversation and a Google search. I mean, in the end, um, that person who was involved is no longer involved and went around the same time and it wasn't it wasn't a, a damaging or difficult conversation in the end he realized that he'd made a mistake as well and basically fell on his sword mm. but that's kind of but that was something that i wish that we all could have avoided and that's something that no one warned me about and that was my circumstances at the time yeah, that's for, it's, it's hard to know you're making the wrong decision at it the is point. and i think probably one of the the realizations yeah. for um any business or anyone that's listening to this is understand what business you're really in is important. And for you, Aaron, obviously it is broadcasting news. It's not technology. So try not to build custom stuff if you're not a technology business. Yeah, hundred percent. Stay away from and it. And so we've we've gone out and, and just gone, we need to be everywhere, yeah. right? So we're we're live on Twitter, Facebook. This week we added LinkedIn and Twitch to it as well. We've got apps on every single platform. So every time there's a new app, we're looking for yeah, because we want our customers to discover us anywhere. Mm. Again, we want to completely remove the barrier for entry. You look at where I used to work, Sky News, you had to have a Foxtel subscription. Yeah. So there's a pretty big nice. barrier for entry. And that's something that that's their business model and that works for them, et cetera. For me, I realized that I didn't have teams of foreign correspondents and political journalists and all the things that the ABC and Sky and 7 and 9 and 10 have. But what I do have is a great way to tell stories and I'm very, very, very fast. So when I realized that what I could bring to to the game was to be a fast breaking news channel where we don't have the bureaucracy in the way that the others do, where we can get content out really, really quickly That to me then was, all right, let's change the entire business model to focus on what we can do that they can't do because their bureaucracy holds them back. Mm. And so when you start to put that at the very top of your list of things of what you want to achieve and what your vision is, you then start looking at your entire systems and people and operations and say, who's in the way? Who do we need? What process needs to be faster? What can we delete? What can we add? Who can we add? If the main aim is to get content out there first and fastest, which is the only way to beat them and the only way to get attention, then this is my game plan to make that happen. And so over the past couple of weeks, 
we've been implementing that and we've brought on a new social media person and her role is to not just be our distributor, but also to help us to ingest breaking news because she's the one sitting there watching it all. So we, our, if you came into our studio, what you would see is something completely different to any other TV station, I kid you not, in the entire world. And this came from a conversation that I had with my former CEO, Angelo at Sky, where he was telling me about the new control rooms that Sky had built, which had been you know, painted and windows and soundproof, et cetera. And he said, Aaron, you know what? If I had my time again, I'd actually put the control room right in the middle of the newsroom so that there's no silos, mm. so that the production team, as in the journalists and the producers writing the content, can talk to the director rather than having to go walk to the control room. Because that barrier between the two prevents open conversation and actually sets us back. No one out there cares that there's a barrier in the way of your producers talking to your directors, but they will notice if you're not first and if you're being constantly beaten. So I listened to that. So our actual control room and master control for ticker, as in the place that produces all of our shows and puts them out to air, the guys who touch the buttons, um, sits right in the middle of our entire building. It is literally the middle of the building. So we've got a new studio at one end, which is open plan. So you can turn around as the presenter and look at the producer, look at the social media person, talk to the director behind them. And everybody is within earshot of each other to have a conversation to try and get things up faster. And that's what I believe in. Well, no one's going to pull out a gun when someone runs in with the white paper in your instance there, Aaron. Well, maybe me, <laughs> maybe me. So only me. I love it. <laughs> So, Aaron, what's the plans for Ticker? What's the what's the vision? How big do you want to make this? How like how has it gone? Especially in COVID, like what's the impact been for your business? I imagine it could be a, a good one. So, what's the impact for you? Not good from obviously the society what's going on, but from a business perspective, <laughs> growth, um, growth in business. So, how's it standing for you? I really hate to say it because I feel terrible to say this when we spend all day talking about how terrible everything mm. is, but for us, it's been great like it's been it's been challenging like every day we think to ourselves are we going to get shut down or are they going to say no and when the details came out of what was an essential service and an essential service included being you know an internet publisher as well as a tv station and we're like fantastic we're both of yes. them that meant that we could carry on working from the studio etc but i think that when it first began we were in a co-working space so we began our journey in a co-working space in the city and just by fortune, in late January and February, Jed said to me, I really want to get out of here. And I'm like, why? He's like, well, it's just really hard to sell packages to, for productions and, and people when we're in this little studio. We've got to have something grander. Now, this is coming from the conservative guy, <laughs> yes. remember? And I was kind of looking at him going, what are you up to? But we went ahead with it and he found this place where we're in now in Richmond and it's 250 square metres. We went from a studio facility which was basically the size of a lounge room okay. to having a 250 square metre building. And we came and we moved in and we built glass partitioning and we did all the things you have to do and we did it over the space of a week. It was ridiculous while I was also oh. hosting. So we would get started the co-working space in the morning, produce a one-hour show, jump on a train to Richmond and just chuck on the tradie shorts and away we go for the rest of the day. And we did this until we could move in. Now, had we have been at the co-working space, we would have been shut down yeah. because you couldn't go in there. It was too small. 
because of our 450, sorry, 250 square meters and the rule of four square meters per person, we could carry on with our small team and we could keep doing all of our shows. So we haven't really had many issues there. Um, we have had to say to a few of the shows, look, we're going to put you on rest for the time being, but like we're talking about two or three compared to the 25 we produce just so that we can space people out a little bit better. But then you've got the fact that people are at home trying new things, looking for new things. These days, anytime I post something on LinkedIn about Ticker, I get about forty to 50,000 views. There's now that much oh, wow. interest in what we're doing. Yeah. yeah. That's huge. And it's really funny because obviously you can see where many of the views are coming from. And it's coming from Channel 9 and Channel 7 and the ABC. And obviously they will be watching us very closely. And we've been told they're watching what we're doing very closely. Mm-hmm. And we're little. You know, yeah. we're this tiny group of people who are just having a go. It reminds me very much of what it would have been like in a way, because I think we've all read the story of, say, Richard Branson up against British Airways. There he is with his plane that keeps breaking down up against these huge corporations that have been around for a long time that people know what to get. And so for us, we had to first really, really identify our brand and really, really own it and really pump it out. So we want to be sexy and fun and we don't take ourselves too seriously, but you can take us seriously when it comes to news. And that's kind of, it was to come up with a a new way of presenting and talking to people that we don't currently have and to really own it and to keep pushing it. So Aaron, your story is quite inspiring for anyone listening out there that wants to jump into something big and you're targeting something big. You're not targeting a small little enterprise here. So you've grown from one person to what, 12, but 30 as a part of your network in the space of 12 months. It's such a... Oh, I didn't answer your question. Sorry, I, I never. You asked me what do you expect? Uh, what are your plans for ticket? Um, well, after you guys hand me two hundred million dollar check, I'm moving to the Bahamas uh, and I'm going to uh, and good luck, guys. Um, no, uh, our plan is pretty significant, and I'll be quite honest. We want to be in ten countries within two years. We want to start ticker in other countries because we have something here which is something that could work anywhere. Basically, we do. of what, or 50% of what we do is tell people the news, the business tech news, et cetera. And the other 50% is celebrating different niches of local business. And that works anywhere, Mm, right? So if you think of Singapore, they want that. Two weeks ago. There you go. Anything that any, there are so many things. There are so many countries out there, so many great stories out there about people who want to talk about what they're doing. And so it can work anywhere. And what we've been doing here, this has been our sandpit for overseas expansion. Obviously, everywhere will be a little bit different, but now I'm in that zone where when we create a new graphics package, it's being created so that the same package could work in Singapore or the same package could work in London or where, with the countries that we choose. And we've literally got teams of people in university right now working for us. Their project is which country should take a launch in. So again, it's kind of utilizing other minds outside of yours and eventually they'll come to me with a great plan and I'll say yes and no and then we'll just go and do it, of course, when we can leave the country and do these (laughs) things. But COVID's also given us a bit of a chance to really focus on ourselves and as you could imagine on weekends, there's not much to do in Melbourne right now. So I'm in the studio fixing things, dealing with problems that I've wanted to get around to and making it better so that when we are ready to expand i will literally buy replicas of everything i've got because i've tested it and worked it out and then it will be transferring 
a file, a computer file across and creating local openers and using local accents. And then really it will just be hiring local anchors and figuring out what mean what matters locally in those areas. So that's where we see a lot of our growth. Mm-hmm. Australia, it's, it's very slow to get people to find and try something new, particularly when it comes to media. But the bigger you get, the easier it is. For example, if 10 years ago you'd hired an app developer to come up with a better way to get a taxi to your house, you probably wouldn't have gone too far. It sounds like a wonderful idea, but not many people would have taken it up. But because Uber started overseas and proved itself overseas, by the time it arrived here, you were willing to give it a go and suddenly Uber works. That unfortunately is very much the Australian experience. We tend to, with businesses, try something which has been proven overseas more so than we are to try something developed locally. And you see a big brain drain. Because You're very risk adverse, we are. New, untested is generally not liked for any big business out there. So, or even consumers. Which is why I needed to have a business partner that never took no for yeah. an answer. Like, if you can imagine poor Jed as our salesman, yeah. <laughs> not only does he have to bring in revenue, he also has to train a very stodgy advertising industry yeah. into trying something new and having to prove to them that it works prove to them that if we take their money, they are going to see a return on investment when there's never been any evidence before that someone else has done this. So we're pioneering in a sense, but also having to pay our bills. And I can tell you that we've had about 150% year or sorry, month on month increase in revenue. Well, okay. So doing quite well in terms in the scheme of things, but I think what you said there is it is difficult when you've got a new concept, the idea to push to market. It's not that easy out there just to say, I'm going to do this. You have to get buy-in across the journey. So It's the biggest yeah, task. It it's not the case of build it and no. they will come. It's build it and then hit them over the head with it at 10,000 yeah, times yes. to make sure that they know that it exists and actually put it in front of their hands. I was at the races last yeah. year at uh, Cox Plate, I think it was, and I saw the innovation minister who was there, Martin Bakula, we had just launched our $55 app, of yes. course. And hilariously on the way there, I was getting phone calls from everyone I knew saying, I can't figure out how to pay for the app. And that was the very first moment I knew we had trouble. But I sat with Martin Bakula telling him about this new business had started because obviously I knew him from my time at Sky. And I just grabbed his phone and downloaded the app and made him pay for it. And, you know, that was, but that, I again realized I can't do this with everybody. Like I can't literally grab your phone and make you download the app for everybody. It's just not going to work. So, You've got to think, how can you appeal to people? What is it that you can give them that will make them want to take the step to download the app or to stop and watch your content? We're not all about the app, I might add. If we were relying on it financially, then we would be. But we want you to watch anywhere. We just want you to watch Ticker. Yeah, the more eyeballs, the better. So, Aaron, thank, I think there's been a very insightful conversation around what Ticker is, how you started how you're going to evolve some tech uh, issues along the way in the journey. And it all stems from focusing on that customer and make all that avatar that you've designed there. So mm-hmm. thanks for sharing. I really appreciate you coming on the DevReady podcast and giving people a bit of an insight into the uh, broadcasting space and what that is and how you're changing it really. I appreciate it guys. And I guess I just want to finish off with look after your mental health when you're in the startup space mm-hmm. as well. There's so much at risk. There's so much that's all on you. You feel like if your idea doesn't work, it's the end of the world. It's not. It's actually never the end of the world. And how many people do we speak to that it was their fifth business idea that worked, not their first? 
And if we gave up because of our first or if we let the emotions and the depression get to us, don't be so harsh on yourself. Don't expect yourself to be a winner. Don't think that your great idea is going to be shared by everybody else. You've got to have passion. You've got to believe in it. But I think also just as important as it is to to learn is also to learn to forget, as I mentioned earlier. And that's something that if I started seeing signs that Ticker was going in the opposite direction, of course I try to save it. But you need to save yourself before you can save your business, is my view. So try not to, I guess, get too bogged down and enjoy the experience. And it's a bit like being on a roller coaster. You never know what's going to happen next, but enjoy the highs. Yeah, brilliant, Aaron. And Very well if said. anyone, I think it's yeah, a lot. Oh, so if anyone wants to check out Ticker TV, tickertv.com.au. And from that, yeah, being in a startup and a founder, it is challenging. You have your ups and downs, your left, your rights. And some days are going brilliantly, like you said, and some days are just a challenge. You want to crawl up and just hide away. So reach out, talk to people, build a network is what I've found that supported us within our businesses. And um, I'm sure you've done the same, Aaron, in terms of your network by the sound of it. The very, the very first thing to do is to think, how can you make yourself unemployed? I, I want to finish off with what I consider to be successful. It isn't a $200 million check. It's me on a mountain or having a wonderful vacation and not stressing about ticker because I know that everybody is doing their job and everybody has it under control. And that to me is what you have to strive for as a founder when you can step away from the business and not worry about the business. That's definitely the aim. Brilliant. Thanks, Aaron. Really appreciate you coming on board. And, thanks, uh, guys. Sharing your journey. Well, thanks, thanks, Aaron. Mate. Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys. Yeah.